Twitter is in hot water. Apple and Facebook are more private than Google, arguably. Lots of data breaches, including some breached Authy accounts and much more news. Welcome to Surveillance Port 101 in the triple digits, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. I'm Henry from TechLore. Our promo segment, as usual, Patreon and Monero. Monero is a privacy cryptocurrency, and we're really big fans of it. Make sure you check that out if you're interested in contributing in a way that preserves your privacy as much as possible on the internet, because, you know, that's what we're here for. And Patreon, of course. Patreon is a recurring donation platform. It uses fiat currencies like US dollars, and you can choose how much you want to give every month. If you give $10 or more a month, you get access to a segment-free video that doesn't have this little ad. You get show notes, and you get to ask a Q&A. One quick note before we dive into the stories, giveaway emails were sent a couple days ago. So we did that 100th episode giveaway. If you were one of the winners, be sure to check your email and make sure that you've responded. Be sure to check your spam folders, things like that. Thank you for your patience, everyone. I know it took us a couple days to get organized and start sending stuff out, but those have started going out. So again, be sure to check your emails, check your spam folders, make sure you get back to that really quick. And with that, we'll jump into our highlight story. And this is kind of a big story. So the headline says, ex-Twitter executive blows the whistle, alleging reckless and negligent cybersecurity practices. I'm going to go ahead and quote the article here because they had a couple of paragraphs that summed it up really well. The whistleblower who has agreed to be publicly identified is Peter Mudge Zatko, who was previously the company's head of security, reporting directly to the CEO. Zatko further alleges that Twitter's leadership has misled its own board and government regulators about its security vulnerabilities, including some that could allegedly open the door to foreign spying or manipulation, hacking, and disinformation campaigns. The whistleblower also alleges that Twitter does not reliably delete users' data after they cancel their accounts, in some cases because the company has lost track of the information and that it has misled regulators about whether it deletes the data as it is required to do. The whistleblower also says that Twitter executives don't have the resources to fully understand the true number of bots on the platform and were not motivated to do so. There's also some claims that up to half of Twitter employees have access to critical areas of the code, which is not good. If you're doing good cybersecurity practices, people would only have as much access as they need. But according to this guy, any programmer that works on the code, Twitter's just like, yeah, here's all of it, whatever, do whatever you need to do. He also claims there is at least one foreign state spy working at Twitter. They reported on this simultaneously in CNN and the Washington Post originally. And I think it was the Washington Post said that it was a like an Indian spy that the Indian government forced them to hire this guy. He speculates there could be more. I think the article mentioned that like two weeks ago, somebody at Twitter was convicted of spying for Saudi Arabia. Twitter is, of course, denying all of this. They're calling Zatko, quote, opportunistic. They're saying he's spreading a false narrative and they claim that he was fired for poor performance and ineffective leadership. So they're kind of painting this picture that like, yeah, we fired him because he sucked at his job and now he's just like lashing out. But I don't know, to me, he doesn't seem like that. The CNN article has a whole section explaining this guy's history. And it sounds like he's been a well-known hacker for a long time. He's not just a corporate suit guy. If I understood the article correctly, it's only the last few years that he started working on the corporate side. It sounds like they're trying to drag him through the mud, but it, it sounds to me like he's that may not be the case. So do you have anything you wanted to add to that? That's just the only note I wanted to throw in there is that Zatko has an excellent reputation and nothing seems to align there with his reputation and his history in, in the field. So it really does seem like that Twitter just didn't pay him enough to to keep him quiet on the issues that were going on inside uh, Twitter. These are all allegations, of course. Congress is calling for a big investigation. So if anything comes out of that, if we learn any more, we will definitely keep you guys updated. 
Data breaches, we're gonna start with Plex. So Plex is a popular self-hosted home media server solution. It is not open source and therefore you have to pay a fee to unlock all of the services, but um, they have a one-time fee option to unlock everything, so it's not terrible. They've now alerted all their users to reset their passwords after a data breach. This is according to a letter that was shared with Bleeping Computer. The intruder potentially accessed a limited subset of data, including email addresses, usernames, and encrypted passwords. Payment details were not accessed, and they claim that the vulnerability has been found and fixed. I just want to go ahead and plug, if you're a uh, Plex user, there's an open source competitor called Jellyfin. For the record, I've never used Plex, but I do use Jellyfin, and I love it a lot. So if you're mad at Plex and looking for something else, it's worth checking them out. Greek natural gas operator suffers a ransomware-related data breach. So this came from uh, DESFA, DESFA, Greece's largest natural gas distributor. This just happened over last weekend, Saturday the 20th. So details are a little scant. They haven't really said what was stolen. They just said that some stuff had been compromised. They claim the situation has been contained and the Ragnar ransomware group has claimed responsibility and is of course demanding a ransom or else they're going to leak all the data. Our next data breach comes from LastPass, who has confirmed a breach and says that user data is safe, quoting the article. Although this investigation is ongoing, CEO Karim Tauba says that no signs of access to the user data or encrypted password vaults have been detected at this time. Only snippets of LastPass's source code and proprietary technical documentation has been stolen, unquote, which is still not great because, you know, who knows what the attackers are going to find in that source code because it's all closed, so... I'm sure they haven't been getting a lot of like security researchers and bug reports and stuff like that. We're not big fans of LastPass around here. We think there's better options that cost less and give you more and don't lock you into their ecosystem. So if you're a LastPass user, this is what, like their second or third incident this year? And, and this goes back like years. I mean, LastPass does not have a great track record. They really don't. Like I said, this year alone, they've they've got plenty of, plenty of reasons. My point is uh, definitely check out a different password manager if you're on LastPass. We think there's way better options. We are going to continue the Twilio saga. We did not, I didn't expect this to keep having such a, such a fallout effect, but DoorDash was hit by a data breach linked to the Twilio hackers. So again, the Twilio breach happened, I think a couple weeks ago now, and Twilio is responsible for 2FA and authentication for a lot of corporate accounts, but they also offer their Authy accounts, which we'll talk about in a second. But regarding DoorDash, names, email addresses, de delivery addresses, and phone numbers of DoorDash customers were breached. For a smaller subset of users, hackers access partial payment card information, including card type and the last four digits of the card number. So it seems like we're seeing uh, other companies get hit by this, and I won't, wouldn't be surprised if we see more companies come out in the next few weeks. Who was that earlier this year? Oh man, I forget their name. But it was like one company got hacked and just for like weeks, every week, it was like another company affected, another company affected, another company affected. Uh, wasn't SolarWinds. It's going to come to me. Well, it wasn't. I wanted to say SolarWinds, but I knew that wasn't it. It'll, it'll come to me like halfway through the episode. Continuing that note, Henry mentioned Authy, which is a uh, software two-factor app that Twilio, I believe Twilio owns. They were also accessed, and this was a lot more severe. Twilio's investigation into the attack, which occurred August 4th, reveals that attackers gained access to some Authy user accounts and registered unauthorized devices. So there were 93 users and linked devices on those accounts that were affected. The attackers would have been able to access the 2FA codes generated for the app, the accounts, 
And the company says that it has removed the unauthorized devices and contacted the affected users, provides instructions on how to protect their accounts. There's instructions in the article if you're an Authy user, so be sure to check that out. And if you are an Authy user, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we're really not fans of Authy. They, again, they're another one of those services that tries to lock you into their ecosystem. It makes it really hard for you to take your data and go somewhere else, which we're not fans of. Again, there's better better things out there. If you're a Mac user, uh, Rivo is available on iOS and Mac. And it, I'm told it syncs between the two. If you use iCloud, it'll be encrypted in between them. You could use something like Bitwarden. If you pay for premium, you can put your two-factor codes in there and it'll sync between all your devices. Just be sure to use a, a good, strong password with that and maybe a hardware token because, you know, that's really important. Or um, just keep them offline. Again, like Rivo or uh, Aegis for Android. You can back them up. You can export them. You can move them to another app if you decide to go somewhere else someday. Like, And just a last note, we're always uh, suspicious of like phone numbers around here because it's possible that the fact that Authy requires a phone number, because these accounts were tied to a phone number, that potentially... Uh, we don't have all the details, but potentially that made it easier for the attackers to find this and find those accounts and take over them. So get something that doesn't require any data from you. Again, Rivo, Aegis, Bitwarden if you need something that syncs. And preferably keep them offline if you can, but if you have to, just make sure you use something that's a little bit better than Authy. I also wanted to add in here that my guess, again, this none of this is confirmed. My guess is this: these are all targeted individuals. Last week, we read about the Signal accounts, again, phone number problems, that were directly accessed. And it was something, what, like 70? It was less than 100 people that were affected, right? I don't remember. They said it was like less than 1% of their user base or something like that. That's all I remember. Yeah, it wasn't many Signal accounts that were compromised. And now we're seeing also some Authy accounts were specifically compromised too, but it wasn't many. And so my guess here is that these are individuals that are being attacked. And my guess is that the phone number is the central data point between these accounts. And so just be aware of that, you know, be aware that we're not necessarily saying avoid everything that requires a phone number because that's pretty unrealistic, but try to avoid things that are phone number based. And if something does require a phone number, just be aware of that limitation. And personally, I like to use different phone numbers for as many things as possible to try to avoid this problem. Just FYI, it was 1,900 users. Never mind. Moving to companies now, Oracle's surveillance machine targeted in U.S. privacy class action. The suit, which was filed Friday as a 66-page complaint in the Northern District of California, alleges the tech giant's worldwide surveillance machine has amassed details on some 5 billion people, accusing the company and its ad tech and advertising subsidiaries of violating the privacy of the majority of the people on Earth. The substance of the complaint hinges on allegations that Oracle collects vast amounts of data from unwitting internet users without their consent and uses this surveillance intelligence to profile individuals, further enriching profiles via its data marketplace, and threatening people's privacy on a vast scale, including, per the allegations, by the use of proxies for sensitive data to circumvent privacy controls. To a lot of people listening, this isn't probably a huge eye-opener. Uh, this is pretty normal stuff that we talk about a lot, but it is nice to see that we're starting to see some actions taken, and this is just the announcement of the class action, and we'll keep you all updated if there are any updates on that in the future. I just want to add to that. The reason I think this is such an interesting story is, if I read the article correctly, Oracle's being tried as a data broker. Interesting. Like, they're not, they're not targeting the processes by which Oracle does it, they're saying like Oracle is a data broker and they're not getting their data from meaningful consent. And like no one's ever done that before. So I really hope this will go somewhere because that'll open the door to sue 
you know, LexisNexis and Axiom and like all these other companies that all they do is collect data. It won't necessarily get rid of them, but it might force them to be a little bit more transparent with their their stuff and, you know, require them to get a little bit more consent. All right, our next story is about NSO. And speaking of hoping things change in the surveillance industry, an NSO chief has stepped down as the Israeli spyware firm is restructuring. The NSO group, in case you're not aware, is behind Pegasus. You may have heard of them. It's a zero-click malware that is typically used to target dissidents and journalists in foreign countries and probably sometimes not foreign countries. It's a spyware used to like keep an eye on their phones. And anonymous insiders said that the CEO would remain in the company and that an additional 100 employees, which is about 13% of their total workforce, would be let go. Personally, I don't think this is a hot take. We're hoping that this is a sign that NSO Group is circling the drain. For the record, they are not the only spyware maker out there. There are plenty of others, but they're just kind of like the most well-known one. And in my opinion, every one less is a win for the world. So we're not a fan of them. Google has cracked down on VPN-based ad blockers. Google has announced that Play Store policies for developers will change regarding VPNs. The logic is to stop VPNs from tracking users, but this will also work in reverse by blocking VPNs that block trackers and ads. This particular piece comes from Blockada, Blockada, so it goes on to talk about how they're working around this, but the broader context of the story is worth knowing. Personally, I, I, I genuinely do think this is probably being done for, for good reasons on Google's end. Uh, this is a pretty common problem. A lot of these free VPNs you see on the Play Store are heavily not privacy respecting and are claiming all this data for themselves. So I think the intentions are good, but yes, this could also have some negative impacts for people actually trying to do good um, on the Play Store. This reminds me of the Brave story uh, last week of like Brave has to work around iOS limitations to prevent abuse, but it makes things it makes things harder for people like Brave to, to make them better. A quick update, Snap agrees to a $35 million settlement over a privacy lawsuit. This lawsuit alleges that Snapchat's filters and lenses violated Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act by collecting and storing biometric data without user consent. Illinois residents who use the lenses and filters between November 17th, 2015 and now may be eligible for a cut of the settlement, estimated between $58 and $117, which is more than the $10 that Equifax has refused to pay me. The settlement, settlement still needs final approval, but users who think they may be eligible have until September 24th to submit a claim. Here's my cynical side coming out. Snap denies that it violated the Privacy Act, and the spokesman said that Snapchat lenses do not collect biometric data that can be used to identify a specific person or engage in facial identification, and they add the data used by lenses stays on a user's mobile device and isn't sent to Snap servers, unquote. So my question is, why did they settle? If they have lawyers that are good enough to like, because we've seen this time and time again, the state's like, oh, we're suing you for like all the money in the world. And then the lawyers are like, we'll give you 350. Like if their lawyers are that good, then why didn't they settle at all? Why didn't they just like run the case out until it finally got dropped? But whatever, that's just me being cynical. And streaming service Crunchyroll is blocking privacy-focused email to Denota because hackers use it. So we saw something similar with Microsoft Teams a couple weeks ago who blocks to Denota. The article rightfully points out that cybercriminals use lots of different email providers, including Gmail and Yahoo. So the logic of only blocking to Denota is pretty questionable. For now, you can use an alias service like Simple Login, or you can use a custom domain. We actually generally recommend people have custom domains so that you are able to switch between email providers at will, and you get to control your own email, and you never have to change your email uh, ever again. Uh, but ideally, you combine that with an alias service so because you never get to change your email again. <laughs> 
And our final business or company story, DuckDuckGo now offers anti-tracking email service to everyone. So I'm pretty sure we mentioned this in the past. DuckDuckGo came out with their own email masking service. Before it was in beta, now it's open to everybody. I'll go ahead and say it. Personally, we're, we're not really huge fans of this. Not because there's necessarily anything wrong with it, but just because it's kind of limited and clunky compared to other competitors. Like, first of all, you have to sign up in the app or the browser extension or the browser if you're on Mac. You know, it's not like you can just go to the website and sign up. You can't start an email. You can only receive emails. Although they, they have made some good changes. So uh, the emails will strip links of tracking uh, tracking links. They will upgrade HTTP to HTTPS if possible. And they have added the ability to reply. So you can, still can't start an email, but now you can reply, which is a huge plus. I think they've always removed tracking pixels from images. I could be wrong about that one, but I'm pretty sure that's a feature that's been there for a while. But again, now it applies to tracking links too. Again, we're not necessarily fans of this. Other competitors do it better in our opinion, but I mean, hey, if you're a big DuckDuckGo fan and you want to use it, by all means, it's out, it's slowly getting better, and now it's publicly available to everyone. So go forth and enjoy. Also, just to outline in the notes, they do clear up some privacy things as well. If you're concerned from the privacy angle here, they say that they don't store any of the data of the emails and everything's wiped immediately. And so it seems to be privacy respecting, um, at least by their word, uh, just to outline that. But it, it still doesn't change that. I'm not a big fan of this and I don't think Nate is either, just in general. But if it works for you, then great. And now the research of the week. Software developer cracks Hyundai's car security with Google search. So the title says it all, a researcher going by Green Luigi one wanted to modify his infotainment center. The article mostly walks through the various steps he took to do this, the most alarming being that when he tried to find the secret key that would allow the car to accept his modified firmware, he found the actual key itself plainly posted in a PDF as an example. So um, that's pretty embarrassing. Uh, I would not like to be Hyundai right now, but uh, that's uh, definitely a fun research story. Our next story is very interesting. Airgap systems leak data via network card LEDs. I'm going to quote the article and totally screw up these names. Israeli researcher Mordecai Guri Juri, has discovered a new method to exfiltrate data from airgap systems using the LED indicators on network cards. This is being dubbed uh, EtherLED or EtherLED. The method turns the blinking lights into Morse code signals that can be decoded by the attacker. The attacker begins with planting uh, on the target computer that is a grammatically weird sense. So the attacker begins by planting malware on the target computer that contains a modified version of the firmware for the network card. This allows taking control of the LED blinking frequency, duration, and color. The attacker must then use a camera to capture the dots because the, the blinking happens too fast for like human decoding. So basically they got to use a camera to film it and then later on they can decode it. I don't want to interrupt, but like this is quite literally the best example I could give someone of like how so many of these research articles are just theoretical attacks yeah because <laughs> like this is so ridiculous <laughs> that's that's what i was about to say is like i i unless you work for like the nsa or like a fortune 500 like defense contractor or something i don't think this is probably something you really got to worry about because again first of all they got to infect your computer that's always step one which we've seen in the past is definitely possible but it's still pretty difficult with an air gap device so first they got to infect the air gap device and then on top of it they've got to have a camera aimed at the network card recording the LEDs. And then on top of that, they got to get that footage out to wherever they are so they can analyze it. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a proof of concept for sure. I think the reason we share these things is just to remind you guys that like nothing is unhackable because that is an important lesson to take away 
but we definitely also don't want to scare you guys into like, oh my God, my computer's, you know, somebody's sitting outside in a van recording the, the flashing of the, like, it's probably not happening. Again, unless you work at Area 51, maybe. Maybe they're trying to do that to you. But for most of us, this is probably not a concern. It's just a reminder that nothing's unhackable. And it's just an interesting story. So I think this next one is probably a little bit more likely than the one we just covered, to be totally honest. Yeah. So the next one, injecting data from air-gapped computers to nearby gyroscopes. So there's another air-gapped attack. Air-gapped, for those who don't know, is essentially just an offline device, a device that's disconnected from the internet. Um, in this paper, they present guy. I don't know what the joke is here. Gyro, gyroscope. If you go in the show notes, you'll see how they spell gyroscope as the name of this. But it's an ultrasonic covert channel that doesn't require a microphone on the receiving side. Their malware generates ultrasonic tones in the resonance frequencies of the gyroscope. These inaudible frequencies produce tiny mechanical oscillations within the smartphone's gyroscope, which can be demodulated into binary information. There's actually been uh, some studies about this in the past. I don't think it's the first time we've seen this one. As with all attacks, this first requires your air gap device to become compromised. The malicious smartphone must also be infected or placed nearby within 800 centimeters max. So this is another proof of concept. Um, I guess this one might be more likely to be abused than the last one we covered, but it's just worth knowing that these things are possible and pretty much anything that can be intercepted or can be... I do want to outline there is a certain section of the community out there that believes things like airplane mode and being offline mean nothing because of attacks like this. And that's just a huge oversimplification of the problem. This is unlikely to impact you. And I still think airplane mode and disabling radios is still useful even when you have attacks like this. So our next bit of research is about iPhone's upcoming lockdown mode and how websites can fingerprint you. And I guess this is kind of a point one for people who say like blocking JavaScript makes you stand out and stuff like that. So this comes from John Osbey, who is the CEO of Crypty. And he's basically saying that because lockdown mode disables certain features like custom fonts, for example, it makes your fingerprint more unique and this can make you stand out more. And he calls it an example of prioritizing security over privacy. And he basically says there's not much Apple could do about this unless they wanted to like delay lockdown mode and completely rework how it operates. He says he's built a website that is a proof of concept that can detect if you're using lockdown mode. I forget what it's called and I didn't make a note of it here. It's in the article. I think one of my readers on Twitter went to it because he he commented saying it works. Another iOS security researcher they interviewed in the article recommends that everyone turn on lockdown mode if they can to help the people who need it blend in, kind of like using Tor. So if you're an iOS user, when iOS 16 comes out, I would say go ahead and give lockdown mode a try. If it doesn't interfere with your life and things go fine, maybe leave it on, help people out if you can. Same thing with Tor. The final research article I threw in, uh, just to preface this as almost a bad example of a research article, because I think it's a terrible research article and I want to uh, have a little bit of an educational moment as a community. I'm gonna just go through the article and then I'm gonna go through why it's not good. So the article is Google tracks 39 types of private data, the highest among big tech companies. So yes, this uh, speaks to how much data Google collects in regards to the number of data points, uh, and it's bad, it's 39 types of private data. And then they also assert that Apple is good because Apple collects the least, I think it was 12. But that's all it speaks to. We both, before we actually came together on this, we supposedly both did the same thing of trying to find the actual linked analysis, which they didn't provide, or research methodology, which they didn't provide. All they include is just a chart. And the chart has the five tech companies and the number of data points. 
they collect. They don't even tell you what the data points are. There's also the fact that Facebook collects only two more data points than Apple. So is the takeaway here that Facebook is just almost as privacy respecting as Apple? And I would say no. So this doesn't seem to be a great overall assessment of the situation. What they're analyzing doesn't seem to mean much. Their methodology doesn't, there is no methodology. Um, and we just have a lot of questions about this research article. And But if you just read the headline, you're gonna come away from this thinking, wow, Google is awful for privacy and Apple is fantastic for privacy. And the reality is it's a bit more nuanced than that. And uh, yeah, I threw this in because it's a bad research article and I hope you all uh, learned to always go through the primary resource. And Nate has a fun story too. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to throw this in more for um, to let you guys know. So I actually commented on the original article asking like, hey, do you guys have a link to the study or any more information? And my comment's not there. Um, I don't know if they deleted it. I'm definitely not accusing them of that because it could also just be a glitch. And I, I just kind of wanted to know that happens a lot on YouTube too. So like sometimes we'll see you guys comment like, oh, you deleted my comment. We probably didn't actually. We typically don't delete comments unless they're like really abusive or like really not okay. Um, if, if it's just a difference of opinion, we don't delete your comment. We don't care. So yeah, um, could have been a glitch. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they did delete it, but yeah, it's definitely, like you said, like at, at face value, it was just kind of like, oh, this is an interesting study, but then you kind of go to learn more information and it's like immediately, it's like, okay, what data points? Like, how did you do this? Did you do packet capture? Did you compare the privacy policies? Like, yeah, it, it left a lot to be terribly done. done. And it doesn't include things too. Like, well, when they talk about Facebook, are they also including all of Facebook's other applications and tying that data together? Like, what's the context of the data collection? Like, there is just so much. Did they look at WhatsApp and that's yeah. it? Yeah. They're like, well, it doesn't collect <laughs> message data, so that's good. Yeah, it was just terribly done. And also on the comments thing, too, some of you people, guys, come on. <laughs> We're not on YouTube Studio in real time deleting your comments. If you left a comment and it's not showing up, it's probably YouTube that did that, and we're sorry. We always go through the health review section every once in a while to see if anything is a false positive. Normally it isn't. Normally YouTube just randomly deletes comments, so we're sorry. I remember that happened to me a lot in the early days of my channel. You and I were trying to figure that one out. It was like every like every like third or fourth comment would make it through and everything else got deleted. It was really weird. Yeah, Nate's The New Oils channel was not able to leave comments on the TechLore channel back when surveillance support was on TechLore. I couldn't even leave comments on my own videos half the time. So, yeah. It was bad. Yeah. So, like, we're not doing that, guys. <laughs> Gosh darn it. <laughs> With that, we'll move into politics. And we kind of only have one story this week. This story comes from India. And it says the India railway firm scraps plans to monetize customer data following uproar. I'll go ahead and read the article. Indian Railway Catering and Tourism Corporation, IRCTC, is a state-run firm with a monopoly on online booking of train tickets, and they have scrapped their plan to monetize consumer data, customer data, after its tender drew concerns from many. In a tender earlier, the firm had proposed appointing a consultant for a digital data monetization on rail passengers' data. The tender sought to explore studying customers' behavioral data, their frequency of journeys, as well as geography, the kind of ticket they purchase, and mobile number and gender. The plan, had it been approved, would have helped the firm increase its revenue by more than $125 million, according to an estimate by the firm. The uproar about the tender prompted the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Information Technology, chaired by Indian politician Sashi Tharoor, to summon the IRCTC executives to answer public concerns. So yeah, that's a win. Um, they were looking to make more money and everybody got really pissed and they said, never mind. So remember that raising awareness and complaining about these things sometimes can make a difference. It's not always a total defeat.
They might try something else in the future. I don't know. We'll try to keep an eye on that. But for now, that's a win. I have some bad news. Free and open source FOSS section is empty this week. So that's that's it. That's that's the update for FOSS. So we'll go right ahead into Misfits. And we have some good news. So bad and good news. Don't worry, I, I, I've got you all covered. University can't scan students' rooms during remote tests. A judge has ruled. So an Ohio judge has ruled that a Cleveland State University's virtual scan, so what, the way this works, for those who don't know, because of all the remote learning and everything, sometimes before tests, they want to ensure there's no, no cheating or anything like that. And so what they'll do is they'll have you lift up your computer and you'll do like a whole room scan. That's called a virtual scan and it's done for anti-cheating purposes. And this is normally done in like a private home. So they have found that this was unconstitutional because of the Fourth Amendment. That's pretty much it. It's a good win for privacy, though obviously other problems remain with these virtual softwares. And just because this case ruled in this favor doesn't mean that this is now law or anything. People can still do this. It's just this might start setting a precedent in the future for, for similar situations. Last but not least, hackers are breaking into and emptying Cash App accounts. Title pretty much says it all. In one person's case, Cash App has not reimbursed them for the stolen funds, and it's unclear if they will. If you're a Cash App user, this is worrying. Cash App, for those who don't know, is uh, just Venmo, PayPal. It's one of those apps where you can send people money. So I, I looked into this because, you know, whenever I see these kind of stories, I'm like, all right, what are we... What can we do to defend ourselves? Cash App apparently does not have a password. You log in by either entering your email or your phone number, and then they send the code to you. On the dark web, of course, some cyber criminals are selling credentials for email accounts that are known to be linked to Cash App. So, you know, if they know, like, this person's Gmail is also a Cash App user, and maybe they have the password from another data breach, they go ahead and sell that as like, hey, here's a Cash App account. So defenses, you can switch to email instead of phone. Enable two-factor on the email, and then in Cash App, you can enable security lock, which requires a PIN to approve each transfer. I also did notice um, I like was looking through the app. I don't have it, but I know people that do, which is always a fun conversation. People don't even question me anymore. I'm like, hey, can I see your phone? Do you have this app? I was looking through the settings, and there's also a, there is an actual 2FA setting, but it says in the description, it says something like protect your tax information. So I don't know if that relates to sending cash or if it's just your personal data, which still couldn't hurt, but... Yeah, if you're a Cash App user, first of all, I'd reconsider it. If you don't really send cash that often, maybe just give people cash. But if you do use it a lot and you really need it, then be sure to lock it down and secure it. And now we have our Q&A of the week. Again, these are questions submitted by our awesome patrons. So if you want to ask us any questions, it can be about us, it can be about the news, it can be about just general privacy and security, go ahead and join our Patreon. Uh, the first question is from Petrified this week. This question is broken up into a lot of like minor questions, so I'll just go through them very quickly. Is a private or open source GPS device possible? Yes, it can be. I would ask why... I, I always like to think of like why something is open source and the context behind it being open source. In the case of GPS, it would be good for transparency to know it's not collecting anything else. But at the end of the day, the GPS protocol itself is probably the more privacy intrusive aspect of things. So even if a GPS device is open source, I'd say that concern is still there. Do you think device compartmentalization for navigation tools is practical? Uh, generally, no, uh, but that's gonna be up to you. If you have like a GPS unit in your car, like one of those Garmin or anything else that's similar to that in your car, I mean, maybe you find that more practical. I think that really depends on the individual. So it really just depends on what you're using for your GPS device. Do you think a FOSS GPS could perform better than a proprietary one? Yes, nothing's stopping it from doing that, but I've used a lot of open source uh, navigation maps on phones, and frankly, I find them pretty crap compared to the mainstream alternatives. 
especially for navigation. Like the maps part of it is fine, but actual turn by turn navigation seems to be the big hiccup on a lot of the open source alternatives. Uh, just to outline some of the things I've tried, uh, Magic Earth, I've heard some good things about. I don't think that's open source. There's organic maps and there's also uh, OSM and and anything else that's based on OSM and. And also, as far as I know, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure a lot of those GPS units you put in your car have the maps downloaded offline. I don't think they require ongoing internet access. So all you're dealing with those external devices is just the GPS signal. You're right, which makes them a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, there's the privacy aspect of it, but on the other hand, you have to make sure you update them and download the new maps regularly. And also, you probably aren't getting like traffic data. So it's not gonna take you on like the fastest route, it's gonna take you on whatever it believes is the most direct route, which may take twice as long with traffic, so. Got it. Well, in that case, maybe the best middle ground is to use something like a GPS unit, but you can use something like Google Maps in a secure private browser to just check what route it recommends. That doesn't require satellite to do that. You just type in the destination and the original address. And if you have a properly set up browser, there's not much data leakage to Google or anything else you want it to use online. Um, and then you could just cross-reference the routes with your GPS unit. You have a lot of options. All right, and our second question of the week came from Seth, who says, which Android ROMs do you recommend most and why? Truthfully, I would say just try whichever one you're looking at because as far as I know, all of them offer the ability to roll back to stock Android. So if you try one and you don't like it for whatever reason, then just roll back or try a different one. Like it's it's really, it's one of those things where you have nothing to lose. Like just back up your data and you're fine. That would honestly be my advice. Like if you're delving into the world of Android ROMs out there, you probably know what the common ones are and what the common recommendations are. And you probably are considering some of them. Just try them. You know, try them, see if you like them, see if they work for you. With every single ROM, I've heard conflicting reports on usability. Some people are like, I daily drive it, I have no issues. Other people are like, I tried it, it broke everything and it sucked. It sounds like your experience will mostly be based on like what apps you use and as an end user, what you want out of it. Really, I would just say try them. There is an order that I would recommend, but at the end of the day, if one of them doesn't work for you, I think as long as the bootloader is locked, you know, as long as it's not like Lineage or EOS or something, no offense to those guys. I mean, they're they're making devices last longer and I respect that, but as, as long as it's something that's secure, I really don't think there's anything wrong with trying and finding the one that works best for you. Yeah, that's gonna be the only thing I was gonna come in on is I, I'd say like really the, the, the one thing I'd really look for is if uh, it has verified boot or not. And even if it doesn't, I would still wouldn't say it's a no. You know, I still think Lineage, EOS and all those other play ROMs have a place. Um, just be aware there's a little bit of a security downgrade by using those. But for most threat models, you should be fine even with that. And sometimes it comes with still an advantage. If you're using a device that doesn't get software updates because it's four years old and you're able to upgrade to the newest version of Lineage, you still get some software updates at the cost of no more verified boot. So um, just some things to think about. It's, it's a pretty complicated issue. And that is all the news this week. So some really explosive accusations made about Twitter, which we will try to keep you guys updated on. Apple and Facebook are arguably more private than Google, but you know, we covered that. There's some questions there. And again, a lot of data breaches this week, a lot of updates to the Twilio thing, including some breached Authy accounts. So make sure you respond to that accordingly. And much more news that as always, we will try to keep you updated on as we can. 
Our promo segment, to remind you guys, we have Patreon is a great way to support us. It's ongoing recurring payments. You get benefits, you get show notes, you get a ad-free segment or an ad-free episode. You get to ask a question in the Q&A if something's on your mind. And then if Patreon is not your speed, but you still want to support us, there is Monero. Monero is a privacy coin. We see practically nothing about you. I think we can see like transaction ID and how much you sent and that's it. Which on that note, we do see all the donations that come in. Thank you guys very much for supporting the project. It's really awesome. It's so helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to Surveillance Report. As always, final thing we want to ask of you, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that is an option. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy and you can help us do that. So thank you again for listening and we will see you guys next week.